This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. No point dressing it up. These Champions League quarterfinals haven't had that much jeopardy, but what semi-finals to look forward to? Real Madrid, Manchester City and a Milan derby. At the Allianz last night, Bayern Munich took the game to City, pressed high and caused them problems. Perhaps a less than 100% fit Eric Chupamoting isn't enough at this level and the Tuchel for Nagelsmann change hasn't made the impact the top brass wanted. Dyer Upamecano didn't have a nice time, but who would against Erling Brown Haaland, the difference maker again? He did sky his dubious penalty while Kimmich scored his. It's about time we had a proper conversation about what to do about the handball law. Also today, a goalkeeper scoring an injury time in the Championship, a Premier League slash FA Cup semi-final preview and the Pandora's box of our verbal ticks is open for business. All that plus mystery rappers, your questions, And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Zvonimir says, a true midfield diamond pod lineup. Uh, So, you know, put them wherever you like. Barry Glendening, welcome. Hello. Hello, Lars Hivertson. Really intrigued by who would be where in the midfield diamond out of the four of us. So that's gonna be, I feel like we need to address that before moving on. I'm not going to be able to focus. Well, I'm afraid you don't get the choice of what we do when. Damn Philippe Auclair, bonjour, ça va? Ça va, ça va. I'll be at the back. Not okay. moving much. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's screwed. And Barry, it's screwed. And Lars, it's four holding midfielders. That's what you've so it's got. It's a very compressed diamond. It's a diamond that's been flattened, which, uh, you know, is a very difficult thing to do. It has. Um, right, let's do the games, the semi-finals, the football of the Champions League, and we'll discuss the handball law in a special bit in part two. So we have our semi-finals, Real Madrid, Manchester City, AC Milan, Inter, which are both very exciting. Let's go to the Allianz. Bayern Munich 1, Man City 1. I felt, Lars, this was a bit like Chelsea, Real Madrid in that one side had a lead. The other team, Bayern in this case, played pretty well in the first half, created one big chance, couldn't take it but were always vulnerable and eventually succumbed. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds like a fair analysis. Uh, I, I think on one hand, if Bayern weren't Bayern, you'd probably come out of that game thinking, well, we're up against Man City, who are basically unstoppable at the moment. You know, we had a lot of intensity in the first half. We got into some good positions. I think City only had something like 41% possession in the first half. You, know, you don't see that very often. And and they would come away with it thinking, you know, we tried, but it, we were up against a very good team. Problem is, that's not really how Bayern think about anything. I don't know if, you, if you've been to the Allianz Arena, but one of those great pre-match songs they do, it has the, the chor- a chorus in English that says, FC Bayern forever number one. Uh, FC, uh, you can call us the champions of the world, and uh, FC Bayern forever number one, and we're much better than the rest. The song does not go. We are very good, but not quite as good as Man City. That is not how the song goes, and that is just not Bayern's outlook on life. So I don't think they will be happy or settle uh, for that in in any way. Yeah, I thought it was a strange game because they did worry City to an extent, and they got into some promising positions, but there was something that just wasn't right. In the Bayern attack, there was a lack of rhythm, I think, is the phrase I've ended up thinking about. You know, not the shot was not quite at the right time and the pass was not quite at the right time. A bit of a frustrating thing to watch for those of us who were kind of hoping for excitement in this game. Mm. And, you know, Sane had a big chance. He had one in the first leg or two in the first leg and those moments against City matter. Joel says, uh, um, Barry, if City can score against you off a long ball on a knockdown, as well as having actual books written about how their manager approaches football, what are the rest of us supposed to do? Well, exactly. The goal was very, very route one, wasn't it? Uh, A big John Stones larrup up the pitch uh, to the big man who knocks it down to Kevin De Bruyne, who plays it back to the big man, and then Deo Upamecano lost his footing. I think, you know, he was made lose his footing because he was trying to run backwards, and Haaland made no mistake, and that's it, more or less, you know, tie over. On balance, I think Bayern Munich sort of suffering from the same problem Chelsea have, insofar as they created quite a few chances, but just couldn't score. I think their XG wasn't hugely different to City's over the two legs. And that's the difference. They they sold Robert Lewandowski last summer 
and they haven't really managed to replace him sufficiently. And you wonder how that tie would have gone. We can only speculate, of course, but you wonder how that tie would have gone if he was still there. Yes, I mean, as for Erling Haaland, who who, who um, gave Upamecano a torrid time, Sports has anyone made you as nervous in your job as Erling Haaland makes Upamecano. I mean, at least he'll have like a good after-dinner circuit routine in 20, 30 years about <laughs> having to play Haaland. You know, he was sent off and that was rescinded. And But Haaland's touch, even still, Philippe, to sort of flick it over because he can't have expected Upamecano to fall over or maybe he could, but that flick is brilliant. The, the flick is brilliant, but this being said, uh, Upamecano, I think I should watch that again, but the expression of his face is, is like somebody uh, being on the side of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, of a lake and seeing the creature from the Black Lagoon suddenly <laughs> emerging from the depths. It's that absolute terror. And as he's trying to retro-pedal, um, he basically falls in a heap. And then, but the, the, the touch was, was fantastic. And, and also the, uh, the finish was emphatic, I believe, is uh, the way. He doesn't do, he doesn't tap them in, does he? <laughs> it's no. absolutely incredible. It wasn't a surprise at all, to be honest. That's it's it's strange those games in which you see a team um, creating chance after chance after chance, which they did, or half chance after half chance. But you know, deep inside, it's not going to happen for them. And you had the same feeling in the first first leg, same again um, that night. And and by the way, I wanted to um, add to what um, Lars was saying about the rhythm. I don't think it's because they lacked rhythm; it's because they were all functioning at different rhythms. It's like you had one of their players who was functioning at the proper rhythm, at the rhythm you had to function, was Kingsley Coman, who had an absolutely magnificent game, um, deserved a goal, didn't get it, but it was it was terrific and terrifying and created loads of problems. Mm-hmm. Leroy Sané, it's very strange because he, he, he actually, most of his shots are on target and quite fierce. And, and you can't sort of feel that there is an element of almost of um, he wants revenge on Manchester City somehow and that uh, for letting him go and that there is a kind of the kind of fury is actually preventing him from um, from doing what he should be doing and being perhaps a little bit more uh, logical take the right decisions in front of goal am I too harsh on him because he's dangerous he's, he was very dangerous very dangerous over both legs don't think you're being too harsh. I just felt like there was a, a lot of times where one of the wide players was kind of released into space into a pretty promising area and would then sort of cut back and look, there's no one in the middle. Like, there's no one to play for. And then they end up shooting from not a great position and then nothing comes of it. And I think Barry's kind of nailed it. Like, we could, the, when we're looking at what's gone wrong for Bayern this season, there are a million moving parts at a big football club, obviously. But But I think it can be nailed down to something as simple as You've lost one of the best goal scorers in modern football history, mm. and you've placed him with Eric Maxim Trupomoting. Turns out that made the team worse. I mean, <laughs> it's one of those things. And I think this is also, if you remember back to the start of the season, there was all this talk that, ah, oh, it'll be fine, because Nagelsmann has devised the system with fluid, you know, there'll be no central striker, just loads of, like, attacking guys running around. And it's great, but I feel like that's a failure of of the leadership at the club, not Nagelsmann. You know, he's the coach. It's his prerogative to have sort of tactical ideas. But if he was going into the season going, hey, we don't need to replace Lewandowski, man. Like, we'll just have no striker. Uh, it, one of these directors, be it Khan or Brazo. Seeing the big, Le- seeing the big Lebowski. Well, that's what I'm but this, this is the conversation that should have happened. <laughs> o- Oliver Khan or, Sa- or Hassan Salamisic should have gone, Julian, Julian, just, just get off the longboard, for God's sake, man. Just, just, just settle down here. Like... It's okay that you want to try this. That's fine. But if it doesn't work, then we're having an entire season ahead of us with Chupo Moting as our only striker. We can't have that. It's great that you want to go no strikers. Fine, let's have new ideas. You know what? We're buying Munich. We're going to have to have a striker here just in case. So we're just going to buy one and then you do what you want because you're the coach. I feel like that's the conversation that should have happened, right? Yeah, I mean, and he's, Barry, now not there and Tuchel is there and I mean, his behaviour on the touchline was pretty embarrassing, I thought, yesterday. Um, but but sacking Nagelsmann and bringing him in doesn't seem to have been a good idea from the last six games. Two wins in six, I think, for him? Yeah, I mean, there seems to be, uh, uh, I think, more than a suggestion that Nagelsmann was sacked for, not for football reasons, but for other reasons. And 
his Champions League record was top drawer, you know, and they were doing okay in the league. Uh, so they took a gamble and it hasn't worked. Um, you know, can we think of a team closer to home who've done something <laughs> similar? <laughs> I wouldn't compare very... <laughs> um, the current <laughs> occupiers of the management positions in those two clubs. I don't quite think they belong to the same family of managers, though. Yeah, although Archie was saying that, you know, Tuchel is safe, really, you know, even if they don't win the league. But above him, someone might carry the can, sort of someone in between him and the absolute top, top. Uh, Oliver Kahn is probably okay, but was one of those people who carry the those can. Decisions. Very good. Yeah, That's... carry the can exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, are you going to front up and tell Oliver Kahn he's sacked? I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's my responsibility. I will check. Well, there was a small banner in the crowd, not a massive like thing that everyone had worked on, but small, more like someone's painted on a sheet. But still, uh, Brazo plus Can, heroes of yesteryear, losers of today, uh, said some uh, Bayern fans. And I guess, uh, yeah, there's a suggestion that the the directors are have not done a great job this year. The the question is, uh, is the the kind of Bayern model? They've always been very proud of that. Is the fact that um, ex players, big players in history, were then moving up the club in the hierarchy, and we've had. You know, uh, I mean, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge was one, but Uli Hoeneß, that's how it started, basically. And that they're carrying on this system by which you promote people from within, people who were great players and genuine leaders of, of the team, into positions where they have, perhaps, to use skills which are different from the ones which, you know, you had to use when in the 1970s or 80s or 90s even. And then, therefore, you, you find yourself in a situation where this club, which appears to be so solid, uh, which has such a pride in its traditions and the fact, again, people are from the past are taken in uh, the, the system uh, and, and brought to, to lead it today, maybe the system isn't just working. Maybe that's the problem with them. We always ask, you know, do footballers make great managers? Do footballers make, do great footballers make great football administrators? I mean, I can only think of Michel Platini, who is clearly brilliant at both yeah. of them. So some of them do. And in the case of Bayern, you can argue that Uli Hoeneß certainly has been, was a visionary. He, he totally changed that club. You could say that Rummenigge, for all his faults, was also a very good administrator, certainly a very good net, networker and somebody who knew how to use the, um, well, his relationships in the world of football to, to good effect. But maybe that age has passed, has gone. I've got a feeling that nobody heard me say Platini there or just didn't take, or actually Ooh. just took me seriously when I said he was a good football administrator. Anyway, <laughs> it's Real Madrid City. I, I wonder, Lars, is Vinicius Junior versus no right back <laughs> an issue for City? Yeah, it could be. Um, and and we've, we saw Real Madrid in, in both games against Chelsea uh, have quite a lot of joy by just sticking those wingers like wide on the field and, and see if there's some spaces there to, to get exploited. Chelsea obviously played a more uh, conventional three-at-the-back type of system. City have their hybrid thing. You know, you say no uh, fullback. I mean, there's meant to be a fullback there out of possession. It's like it's a it's a four out of possession that morphs into into a slightly different system. But certainly, that seems to be the area of the pitch where you're likely to find some space on the counter against City. And I thought again, we've talked about it earlier. The Bayern wingers got into space quite a lot, and and if that is Vinicius. Uh, rather than Kuman or Sané, then yeah, you can imagine them hurting it. But I think it'll be all about for City stopping the transition earlier than that. You know, the the, the regaining the ball, the counter press high up the field. I think one thing we should uh, mention for that is that, strangely enough, over the last um, uh, three games that uh, City has played in the Champions League, um, Pep Guardiola has barely made. Uh, he has made no changes. It's been the same starting eleven in all three games, which is. You know, almost unheard of, and probably unheard of. Full stop. So it, it seems like he's decided. Actually, I don't really care how the opposition plays. Well, I don't really care. Of course, I care, but I'm not trying to outthink myself. And, um, and that obviously that's why he would he would put Bernardo Silva ahead of Riyad Mahrez because Bernardo Silva can do a phenomenal amount of work tracking back on you know Vinicius' side. So. I would be surprised if he if he carried on with exactly the same setup that he's uh, been using to great effect in the past past few weeks now. I mean, it's qu quite amazing to have the same starting eleven against Leipzig and both legs uh, against Bayern. Uh, it's pretty pretty unusual to say the least. And then on the other side, we have 
a Milan derby, which is going to be brilliant. I mean, the city of Milan will be ridiculous for the next two weeks, won't it? And the games will have some atmosphere. Uh, Inter drew 3-3 with Benfica, but really, Baz, they were always in control of this, weren't they? In, a, in as much control as Inter can ever be of a football match, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, it was a very comfortable win. They went in, obviously, with a 2-0 lead, got to 3-1, and uh, Benfica sort of lent the scoreline in air of respectability, but never threatened to get back into the game. I'm extremely excited about this semi-final. Um, there seems to be a feeling that whoever wins the Manchester City-Real Madrid game will win the final. I wouldn't be so sure about that, but um, it'll be interesting to find out if that is correct, isn't it? Won't it? Yeah, and I, I don't know who is... Who's better out of AC Milan into Milan, Lars? I mean, they're they're quite interesting teams. Inter, it's, it's just fascinating that Edin Dzeko was it in this game. It was Edin Dzeko was being marked by Nicolas Otamendi, and I was like, is it is it twenty twenty three or is it sort of like twenty sixteen? Where are we now? It is phenomenal that uh, there's in the Champions League semifinals. There's no Mbappe, there's no Neymar, there's no Messi. Instead, it's Edin Dzeko versus Olivier Giroud is the sort of big yeah. big striker <laughs> matchup there with Ibra looking wistfully from the bench because he's not fit. Um, absolutely tremendous stuff. I feel like I would I would lean a little bit towards Milan. I trust their defense a little bit more. I was really impressed with how they stopped Napoli in that game. Uh, how they just kind of the, the lack of joy that Karachkelia had against them and uh, Simon Shell and Fikayo Tomori very solid in the middle. The two midfielders working really hard. I, I don't, as we saw in this game, even though Inter were the better team, Benfica had quite a lot of joy when they were able to attack, you know? So I, I think there's a vulnerability there with Inter. Uh, that means, I, oh, over the course of two legs, I would sort of favour Milan a tiny bit. The quite extraordinary thing as far as Inter is concerned, and, and maybe the discourse has changed a little bit after last night, but I'm not so sure. There are quite a few people who'd love to see Inzaghi out now. And it's not a joke. I mean, they really would like him out because he apparently, I mean, he was described to me as um, somebody as, who's influenced on the team, changes from one game to the next. It can be very positive at times, but it could be catastrophic at others. And, and the other thing is that Inter, I think, are really flattered by, by what happened in this, in this quarterfinal. First of all, they were on the beneficial end of some astonishing refereeing decisions yet again. I mean, how this is not uh, a penalty on harshness, is it the way to pronounce mm. it, uh, Lars? I, was I have no idea, and it's scandalous that it is not. And, you know, I, I, don't, I would never understand. Apparently, the law means that uh, if, you, if you are hacked from behind, but you half managed to kick the ball, that's not a foul. That's crazy. So there was that. And remember, there was two incidents as well in the first leg where you had this crazy penalty, but also uh, there was a penalty for uh, uh, Benfica, which wasn't given. Then you've got a Benfica team, which honestly is running out of steam and was basically working on pride last night and managed to get back to 3-0. And also two of the the goals they scored Mm. into yesterday were absolute worldies, individual worldies, you know. Um, Barella and so Correa, you think, yeah. well, but, but, oh, they were the magnificent goals. Mm. So you think you put all this together, they're actually not very good. I don't think they're very good. And I think they will lose that semi-final. I think that they have in, in front of them a much um, a much stronger team. Yeah, what's interesting is, is if you remember with Juventus would dock that 15 points, so they were out of the race for the top four. They'll find out today if they've been successful in their appeal. Andy Brussel was telling us on the Australian TV that he thinks they will be successful. They'll get their 15 points back. And if that's the case, they'll go from seventh to third in Serie A. And I think AC Milan will go down to fifth and into to sixth, right? And Inter will be, what, five points off the top four? So suddenly, one of these two teams sort of might have to win the Champions League to get back in the Champions League, which adds an extra uh, bit of excitement to it. So who is playing at, who is playing at home uh, against the team that is at home but not at home. Yeah, so City Rail's on the 9th of May. AC Milan Inter is on the 10th of May. So AC Milan are at home in the first leg and Inter at home in the second leg. Oh, it's sort of good there's no away goals when you're basically playing at home. That would be, sort of be mad, wouldn't it? This is what happened. Yeah, 2002-03, wasn't it? When they played yeah, in the semi-final. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Europa League this evening. Um, Sevilla, uh, Manchester United go to Seville. It's 2-2. Um, Juventus playing in that one as well. So I guess they could win that and then get to the Champions League and then whoever finishes fifth in Italy, 
I'm speculating now. Conference League as well. We'll talk about it on Monday, but we'll probably forget. And uh, that'll do for part one. Um, at part two, we will discuss how to fix handball. <laughs> Groan. <laughs> Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Jack says, will the pod start sending Max egregious handball decisions that result in penalties to drive him insane? B says, Max, what are your views on handball? You've kept it quiet. Um, look, you just take yesterday. You've got Upa Meccano's handball. You've got the Akanji handball, which is point blank range. Mikel Antonio's for West Ham against Arsenal, the one that Saka missed, where his arms are kind of quite close to him, but it's point blank range again. It's not a penalty, but then you've got Trent Alexander-Arnold handling it in the build-up to that goal against Leeds. It's not given. The Maguire handball against Forrest, it's not given because he was in a congested area, congested by his own. The Declan Rice handball. The, yes. the Declan Rice handball, yes, yeah. Yeah, in the build-up. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, in terms of penalties, in 2019-20, the Premier League saw 20 penalties for handball. Seven of those came via a VAR review. By 2020... 21, it was 21 penalties, 12 from a VAR review last season, 25 handball penalties, another increase to 15 uh, from VAR. So not sort of like as dramatic as perhaps I would have thought, but it does feel, Lars, that it is a mess. And you are laws, Lars. Well, yeah, I, I just think it, it's the penalty kick is a problem here. I think uh, the, the fact that any any handball in the area... Uh, almost no matter how incidental or minor, has to be punished. And, and I can accept it. Listen, we could start that off. I can accept that in the game of football. There probably needs to be some kind of sanction for when uh, your, the hand is involved and, and changes the trajectory of the ball and this sort of thing. But because the rules are the way they are, because any foul inside the 16-yard box has to be a penalty kick, you end up with this situation where these little incidental, completely accidental handballs that, that may not even affect much end up being an almost 80% chance of a goal to the attacking team. And it's just one of those areas of the laws of the game where, for the way I see it, certainly, uh, there's no sort of correlation of the punishment fitting the crime. There's no sporting logic. Uh, it, it's just completely skewed in terms of the the situation that leads to the penalty and the value of the penalty. And that, that for me, I think, is a huge problem and needs to be addressed at some point. And also, I was listening to Adam Smith, the Bournemouth defender, who was on the Monday Night Club on Five Live, and he was talking about having to defend with his arms behind his back and saying, it is hard enough when I have to defend against one of the best wingers in the world against whoever it is, when my hands are allowed to do what hands normally do. <laughs> and, and, his, and, and it's like the attacker doesn't have to attack with his hands behind his back it's not you know it's not river dance equal if you know what i mean <laughs> so surely we are all agreed that defenders shouldn't have to play like that but then when i tweeted about upa meccano's handball barry a lot of people said it's a blatant penalty why is he why is he put his arm out there he doesn't need to do that it's an unnatural position have people been conditioned into that seeing that as a penalty now or am i wrong but possibly by the letter of the law it is a penalty because his arm is extended away from his body, making the body bigger in an unnatural position, according to the lawmakers. And if the ball strikes that arm, uh, particularly if it's blocking a shot and goal, then there's a greater likelihood that it will be penalised. But the problem here is referees are encouraged to, and I quote, use their judgment. Different referees have different, well, different referees have different perspectives, different referees have different opinions of what constitutes a handball, and that that is where the problem is. I mean, I think the law is daft, but by the letter of the law, and I seem to say this a lot on this podcast, that is a handball. So the referee hasn't necessarily meant to The referee could have decided not to give it, you know, we'd st it would still be a contentious decision because everyone has different thresholds of what constitutes a handball. So I've come up, Philippe, with two possibilities. So we'll run with one for now. What about if it touches your hand anywhere on the pitch, it is a free kick? No matter in no, so no interpretation. If it touches your hand, it's a free kick. But in the box, it's not a penalty. It's just a free kick wherever the handball takes place. Now, that would obviously lead to some quite ridiculous free kicks in the six-yard box, but frankly... Which is what we want. 
which is, which is what absolutely will. amazing entertainment. But there would be less chance if you, you know, if you block across with your 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 diving in with your feet out and it hits your hand, you're blocking across. It's a free kick there, which is dangerous, but it's not a penalty. How would that work? Would would that work as a as a as a law? Um, nothing will work absolutely because we're not dealing in absolutes. What we're dealing with is a law that is badly written and in which there is one big problem, which is the word unnatural. The word unnatural means absolutely bugger all. It's insane in the context of football. Because if you freeze frame, which is what they do, by the way, any person moving, you will see that. I mean, freeze frame Erling Holland going to goal, you'll see limbs in every single direction. Mm. It will look like a like a, a rabid octopus. Yes. <laughs> and if you look at poor Opamecano, he's trying to keep his arms behind his back. And then as he moves, he loses control. He's not putting it in a natural... It's a perfectly natural position. He doesn't even block the exactly. bloody shot. He, he's, the ball touches uh, the epidermis of, of, his, of his arm and goes to Sommer, which, who parries the... And he gets a yellow card as well. Which is the whole, the whole sequence is absurd. So what I would say is I'm totally with you on the free kick, but what I would say, and this is going to be controversial, I want to bring back the notion of intent, which was taken out. The notion of intent, by the way, still has a role to play in law 12. I quote, it is an offense if a player deliberately touches the ball with their hand arm, for example, moving the hand arm towards the ball. It is still in the law. So, there is a place for intent. And I think it would be up to the referee's um, opinion, and I'm all for referees having opinion, to decide whether it's a case... There's a big difference between the Upamecano handball and the Luis Suarez handball against Ghana. That the Luis Suarez handball against Ghana is a definite penalty and a sending off. No problem. Everybody agrees with that. There is intent. Um, when it comes to Upamecano or, or Akanji, which was ridiculous... Uh, there's absolutely no intent whatsoever. So let's have indirect free kicks in the box for an international handball, which means it's going to be mayhem and fantastic to watch, and penalties for deliberate handball. It's not, and it's 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 giving also back power to the referee to make a decision. So the the I broadly speaking like that idea. The only thing I'd flag up is that I worry about laws that force referees to be mind readers. I, I I always think that's difficult. I can I, I concur that, you know, a, a room full of ten people, you show them fifty handballs, and most will agree on which ones look deliberate and which don't. But but it's still uh, as a point of principle, I don't love uh, a written law that tells the referee, well, you have to guess what the player was thinking here. That that always seems a bit bad to me. But 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 the idea of having a two tiered system where it acts obviously accidental uh, handballs that don't. It deprive you anyone of a goal scoring opportunity or something it shouldn't be a penalty kick it just shouldn't be and uh would you prefer because i don't mind if that is a free kick in the box not a penalty but i also don't mind if all unintentional handballs are not penalized it doesn't bother me at all and and it's just sometimes you get lucky you get lucky in football sometimes and i guess that would be ridiculous if you unintentionally stop it with your hand when you're on the goal line, right? I can see that being a problem. But if you're stopping a cross, which is a lot of these penalties are, someone's sliding in, their hand, as Philippe says, moves because your hand is attached to the rest of you, which is also moving, and it it's not unnatural. It would be unnatural to dive forward and not put your hands out to yeah. land, right? That would be really odd to just face plant all the time. I, yeah, no, I think that's a great point by Philippe. The only way the limb could be in an unnatural position is if you have had like a horrific injury or something i mean i mean when i fell down the stairs my foot was in a very unnatural position <laughs> i can tell you that much uh, i mean that would be the definition of that wouldn't it um no but i think one case in point that's worth bringing up in that discussion max because it's interesting i'm sure a lot of people would agree with what you just said the tomori one against napoli is a great example because that's the typical sort of his arm is just going there behind him even like he has no idea but at the end of the day the ball is on its way to a napoli player who would have an open goal and it has been deflected by an arm and even no matter how accidental i think that probably needs to be sanctioned somehow so who i mean who, are there people who obviously we're having this conversation it's interesting the law is unlikely to change at the end of part two 
right? Who would need to have this conversation for actually any meaningful change to happen? Well, I mean, you've thrown some hospital passes my way over the years, Max, but I woke up at six o'clock this morning to a text message that you sent at 3.25 our time, AM, basically asking me who's in IFAB. So I thought, yeah, I can take on that challenge. And I think the, the more pertinent question is, who isn't in IFAB? Because everyone seems to be in it. So IFAB is, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, the International Football Association Board, uh, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, founding members have a vote each. And FIFA who cover the remaining 207 national associations, they have four votes, and any motion they pass about the laws of the game requires a three-quarters majority, which even I think I can work out is 6-2. All five of these bodies, uh, their mission is to ensure that laws are preserved uh, for the uh, reputation of football's traditions as well as its international reality, whatever that is. And then if you look at the IFAB family tree, there's a board of directors, there's a football advisory panel, there's a technical advisory panel, there's a technical subcommittee, and there's an ex executive support office. And each one of those has loads and loads and loads and loads of people from all over the world, very few, if any, of whom I their names rang a bell with me. But I think they're, you know, sort of... Uh, Coaches, former players, former referees, maybe current referees, technical advisors, blah, blah, blah. So I imagine it takes a lot. There are a lot of very dull meetings with uh, held with PowerPoint presentations to get any law changed. And it's with so many people apparently involved, it seems unsurprising that they come up with, uh, you know, it's like, making a what is that saying about someone making a horse by committee and it ends up you know having two humps and an alligator's tail or whatever so yeah it's it's no great surprise that um they make a mess of these things but then there's also a ura for referees committee i see and i presume fifa as well so i don't really know who's who's in charge if anyone that that horse barry has many limbs in unnatural positions <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I guess the committed the part of ifab where people will recognize some names is the football advisory panel or fap which if you know anything about internet slang you would know that that is an, an, not a great abbreviation uh, but uh, there you have arsen wenger you know hidetoshi nakata medi madavikia figo you know you have the ex players uh, who are meant to bring some of that knowledge so when you do see i see you saw one prominent english pundit argue that the laws have been written by someone who has never played the game which is like that's not entirely that's a bit harsh on figo mate like it's uh the, it, there are football people involved with the discussions here uh but but, but barry is correct in that uh, it's a sort of it seems outwardly to be quite a sprawling bureaucracy and i guess the thing that i as a someone who is not from the the british isles uh max i look at this and think well this is sort of um this is partially decided on one hand you have the sort of the home nation fa's and then you have all the rest of the world and like they have roughly roughly equal standing maybe once upon a time in football history that made sense <laughs> but i think on behalf of the rest of the world that no longer makes any sense it is maybe time you guys let someone else decide uh, the other thing as well is that to be any changes in the laws of football it's not just um uh, the technical committees, subcommittees, and so forth, that the proposal has to be made by uh, a member association of FIFA, which makes it, you know, even complexifies it a little bit more. Um, because, for, for example, the um, the English FA or the Scottish FA could go to IFAB and to say, well, we're sorry, the handball law is a complete mishmash. We need to change that. And here's a written proposal, which is backed by another member association. And then IFAB would have to discuss it. So it is, it is a very, I mean, it is normal that it should be a complicated process and a long process. You don't want people to start changing laws every, every five minutes, like what's happened in rugby union, which at one point, uh, in fact, you thought rugby union is dead as a game because the, the laws change so often that you don't, it doesn't make any sense uh, anymore. I suppose what we don't know is do IFAB, and as far as I understand it, IFAB don't control VAR, FIFA control VAR. So, um, and and these problems have come not necessarily because VAR is a bad thing. It's just lots of freeze frames, lots of slow mo's, etc. You know, do I, are IFAB high fiving 
when when Upamecano is penalised for that penalty and when when Akanji, you know, the Akanji one is just, it's just so baffling, isn't it? Because I just don't know a football fan who goes, yeah, that's a penalty, apart from the ones on Twitter who told me that the Upamecano one was a blatant handball. Well, isn't that similar to the, I think it was Sadio Mane in the Champions League final against Spurs? With Sissoko. Yeah, yeah. he. I think he deliberately kicked the ball onto his arm because there was no other viable option open to him and, and it worked. They got yeah. a penalty. So have we done any, have we, you know, has this been a useful exercise? I've enjoyed the conversation, but have we got any further? We think, can we can we submit something? I, I think a lot of listeners will have switched <laughs> off or press fast forward halfway through my uh, explanation of the IFAB hierarchy. I'm trying to spice this up with internet slang. I feel like I'm getting nowhere. And the penalty, the penalty kick is OP. It needs to be nerfed. But I think a lot of people listening to this, sorry, will say, oh, you have to have an association, make a proposal. That kind of feels like with the FAs, there's a big bureaucracy there as well. And it feels like it's very far away from regular folk and their opinions. So maybe what we should do as a project, we need to find an FA out there that's a FIFA member, maybe from a small country uh, where we can actually get in touch and speak to the people who matter and, and, and maybe have them, maybe like the Faroe Islands or something. Let's send an email to the Faroese and says, guys, we need some sort of FIFA member to actually put forward proposals uh, on behalf of common sense. Yeah, could we crowdfund, crowdfund a, a big bribe? <laughs> See, <laughs> See, you're saying the quiet part out loud, Philippe. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> Why not? It's for the good of the game. Uh, all right. Well, uh, hopefully we got somewhere there. That's it for part two. Uh, part three, uh, we'll cover the EFL, look ahead to the Premier League and the FA Cup semifinals and any other business. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, in the EFL yesterday, a goalkeeper scored a goal, which is, you know, one of the three best things in football, isn't it? Uh, uh, added to... Um, Unai Emery would be appalled. Appalled! furious. <laughs> <laughs> now, what are the three? It's a goalkeeper going up for a corner and scoring. A goalkeeper going up for a corner and then having to sprint back very slowly when an attack is taking place. Or you as a fan heading a ball back into play. But yeah, Ben Wilson, Coventry goalkeeper, bundled one in at Ewood Park. Massive in the context of the playoffs. I sent you a video of a very excited Coventry fan who just said, I love football, and then started swearing a lot. It was absolutely brilliant. I'm, I'm not up for, you know, people filming bits of football, but actually it's worth it occasionally. A friend of the pod, George Ellick from uh, Not The Top 20 podcast, uh, pointed out that Coventry's Twitter account had a goal gif ready to go oh. for Ben Wilson, which is... Great planning, isn't it? So um, uh, Luton confirmed their place in the playoffs at the point at Reading. Middlesbrough almost certainly there. But below them is absolutely brilliant with three or four games to go. Um, Millwall have 65 points. They're fifth. Blackburn 64, West Brom 63, Cov 63, Sunderland, Norwich and Preston 62. So there are so many teams that can get into that. Uh, playoffs in the championship on the Luton game John says let's talk about a legendary striker with long flowing hair making his mark on the big stage who had an absolute roller coaster of a night uh, what did you make of Andy Carroll's game last night it says um, yeah he scored and then got a second yellow for handballing one in but still that goal was uh, worth a point at the bottom massive win for Cardiff at Watford gives them a tiny bit of breathing space down there uh, to the Premier League then Arsenal Southampton on Friday night Philippe um, another 2-2 draw since we last spoke in that West Ham game. How nervy are you? Have you lost all faith? Do you still have some faith? No. No, I'm still I'm still very much enjoying it. Unlike some people who are now saying we are, you know, the club is in crisis and Arteta should be sacked or something like that. I mean, there probably there are probably a couple of people in the darker recesses of Twitter who are saying things like that. Uh, no, not particularly. To be honest, I think that the opponent is not exactly one to strike fear, perhaps, if there is minimum degree of focus in that Arsenal team. Uh, if it were to um, to be otherwise, I think, yes, it would be curtains. I mean, it has to be three points. Um, I really can't see how... I mean, Southampton I haven't been awful, 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 but they haven't been very good either. And to be honest... We've seen, actually, Arsenal can still play some absolutely magnificent football. It's just that they've got to get off that habit of putting the foot off the pedal. That's all. And yeah, it should be should be pretty routine. And if it's not, we're at Of course, building up to the City-Arsenal game, which is on Wednesday night. 
uh, next week. Uh, Barry, which games are you looking forward to most from this weekend? In the league, um, well, Crystal Palace, Everton, that's massive for Everton. You'd imagine Palace are probably safe, but they're in free-scoring form. Everton were atrocious last week. I'll be interested to see if Villa can put in another shift like they did last weekend. I doubt it. That that seemed, you know, everything clicked on that occasion. That doesn't happen very often. They're away at Brentford. Huge game for Leicester at home to Wolves. And obviously Newcastle Spurs is, is big. And Bournemouth West Ham is big uh, in the context of relegation battle. And, and the Newcastle Spurs in the context of qualifying for the Champions League. What Spurs is going to turn up at Fortress St. James Park? So I think I'm looking forward to basically every single game except... I didn't mention Arsenal Southampton. I expect Arsenal to win that. No bother. Yeah. Liverpool play Forest as well, uh, which, you know, Liverpool, if they play that against Leeds with Forest away form, could be tricky. From the uh, Liverpool Echo, Liverpool poised to sign free agent midfielder Adrian Rabiot, Philippe, <laughs> with the uh, 28-year-old's France midfielder's Juve contract set to expire this summer. Yeah, he's the answer to all questions that Liverpool are asking themselves at the moment. But are they the right questions is my question. But, but can I play devil's advocate here and just say Liverpool needs to re- need to reconstruct their midfield and above everything they need people who can run. And whatever you say about Rabiot and you can say a lot of things about Rabiot, he's got a good gen- good engine on him, Philippe. Yeah, 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 he's got a good engine. No, he has he has matured uh, a little bit. Ah, you're softening on Rabiot. Well, you know, he, he was the narrative honest, arc. He, it's the story. It's Rabio the movie. He, he had a, he had a decent World Cup. We shouldn't forget that. And you know, credit to him for that. I still think that he is very much who he is. But <laughs> but that's an interesting. It would rumor. be very confusing. So if no, Jude Bellingham. No, Jude Bellingham because he's too expensive. Let's bring Adrian Rabio instead. That's Liverpool. Uh, Spurs and Brighton have been fined a hundred thousand pounds each by the FA for a mass confrontation. Just make it sound like the Battle of the Boyne or something, you know. Um, uh, they admitted they'd failed to conduct themselves in an orderly fashion. Uh, Christopher says, with the FA earning two hundred thousand pounds from a scuffle, is it any surprise they don't take their obligation to improve the respect shown on games seriously? Not an unfair question. FA Cup semi-finals: Manchester City, Sheffield United on Saturday at four forty-five. Brighton, Manchester United on Sunday at four thirty. What do you want, Barry? Manchester Derby or Brighton to win the whole thing? I mean, is it bad to discount Sheffield United playing City? You know, they've got a chance. They're there. They have a better chance than all but three uh, of the other teams who entered the FA Cup. But I worry for them. But who knows? Who knows? Um, they're almost, their promotion is almost secure. So that may help them play with a bit more freedom. But then if they play with a bit more freedom, they could get absolutely slaughtered. I would love Brighton to win this tournament. Uh, and I give them every chance to beat Manchester United. Uh, and then, you know, the final. We've seen Wigan beat Man City, imperious Man City in the past. Uh, plucky little Wigan in a cup final. So, yeah, I, I just for change of scenery, I'd like to see Brighton win or, or Sheffield United, indeed. No, Brighton are just brilliant. They're just so good. And they're not, yeah. They're not good for Brighton. They're not good for their budget. Like, they're just straight up one of the best teams in the league right now. And it would be brilliant to see them in the final. Yeah, I I think we all echo that thought. I did hear Pep after the game complaining that, you know, City were exhausted and now they've got this game and then the next game. I didn't feel a huge amount of sympathy for that (laughs) well-financed football club. Yeah, and I think we were talking about the the continuity in Pep's choices in terms of his starting eleven. I think that... He might break with this new tradition when they play Sheffield United. Um, and, and Brighton very much might be um, uh, what we call juge de paix in, fr- in French, which is the team that's going to decide um, where the title goes as well as where the FA Cup goes. And in both cases, they are that probably Manchester City's biggest worry, I would imagine, because having to play them at the end of the campaign is not going to be fun. They're just wonderful, wonderful to watch. I just worry, just, and I think, I'm guessing, Philippe, for obvious reasons, but I think everyone really are hoping someone can inflict some kind of uh, adversity on City so we get excitement towards the end of the season here. So we're all kind of hoping they will do it against, that Brighton will do it. But the, but the concern for me still is, 
You know, Guardiola recently talked about how they're the best team in the world uh, in, in the build-up, Brighton. And and I see where he's coming from, but it always just... When, when City are about to play someone and Guardiola talks about how good they are, it tends to be a 5-0 win incoming. This is one of those very, very consistent things. When Guardiola is that complimentary about someone, it usually only goes one way. Weird timing for the women's Champions League semifinals because they're Saturday and Sunday amidst FA Cup semifinal, Premier League, EFL reaching its conclusion. And they're always scheduled for the weekend um, and... Uh, uh, UEFA don't take into account that WSL games happen on those times. So there's rescheduling and they they have to be in um, men's stadiums with VAR. Well, men's stadiums, the, the main stadium uh, with VAR. And so they can be scheduled at weird times. Chelsea play Barcelona Saturday, half past midday. And Arsenal go to Wolfsburg on Sunday. I think that's a two o'clock kickoff. Leah Williamson was injured for Arsenal yesterday in a 1-0 defeat at Manchester United in the WSL. Huge implications for the title race there because Man United go four points clear of Chelsea. Having played two more games, Arsenal-Man City are further two points behind. Um, but yeah, that's worrying for England with Leah Williamson caught her studs in the turf, hurt her knee. And so we'll have to wait and see uh, on her injury. Of course, go and listen to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly because it is required listening. And now, Barry, there is a mystery footballer rapper. Uh, speculation is rife about the identity of rapper, I don't know how to pronounce it, D-Day or Died? I mean, I don't know. D-I-D-E. But, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, recently released the song Thrill, which already has 500,000 views on YouTube and features lyrics like, My team stay winning and every game is like a final. His bio on Instagram is rapper at home, footballer on the pitch, and he's always wearing a mask. Uh, Mikel Antonio and Callum Wilson have ruled themselves out on their podcast. Uh, is it time for us to rule ourselves out on our podcast? Well, it, de- it definitely wasn't Mikel Antonio. <laughs> if the lyric says my team's always winning, I think it's fair enough that Antonio is, uh, it, it can, this season certainly cannot be the one. I mean, what, what, what would it be? My team, my team did quite well last year, but it's been tough this year bringing in all those new signings. Lucas Pakatar isn't hasn't quite gelled yet. It could could, could be Alling Holland, maybe. I mean, that team is always winning. I haven't heard the tracking question. Maybe the delivery is uh, a little bit un-Nordic in its uh, nature, but uh, it, it would be factually accurate, the, the lyrics, which is very important. The consensus is uh, it's Eddie and Ketia. Mm. But, mm. Well, yeah. That team has won a lot. Well, Dida is kind of an anagram of Eddie, isn't it? That is true. So, yeah. So what, Eddie and Ketty, Eddie Howe or Eddie McGoldrick? They're, our three, <laughs> they're, they're, the three, they're the three possibilities. What a band that would be. Uh, ben says, hi, Max and everyone else. I'm an American, recently moved to Cambridge, inspired by today's, brackets, yesterday's conversation on pick-up football. I signed up via the Meet Me app for a casual kickabout this evening just a stone's throw from the Abbey Stadium. While I didn't tread in Max's footsteps running around Parker's piece, I did see on my way home that the pickup scene still appears to be thriving on that particular patch. Uh, PSI attended my first Cambridge game this weekend against Peterborough, no less. I managed to make it out alive. Only a matter of time until the lads at Monday I'll write a piece ranking Cambridge's among the storied derbies of world football. We had quite a few tweets and emails from people uh, who went to play football or have signed up for games this week after yesterday's episode. Barry, you... You have had a look, haven't you? I had a look. I went on the Footy Addicts app and I found a an Asia side game uh, about five, ten minute walk from my house uh, that I didn't play in because uh, I would be a wheezing, puking mess after three minutes and I'd, I'd be begging to go in goal. And I'm sure no one would have a problem with that because nobody wants to play in goal, do they? Listen, you're just one click away, Barry, from the start of a glittering career. Uh, Harry says, Dear Football Weekly, I'm a British doctor who spent the last four years running a clinical trial against malaria on the remote Bijagos Islands of Guinea-Bissau. On my rare trip homes, I've got used to just saying Africa when asked where I work, as people invariably have no idea where Guinea-Bissau is located. So imagine my delight when Guinea-Bissau received a shout-out during one of Max's famous anecdotes. Even if only to mock an unfortunate supply teacher, I want to thank Football Weekly for raising awareness of my adopted nation, which is otherwise only famous as a cocaine trafficking hub. I look forward to the recognition this will surely bring. If anyone reads this far, 
I'd like to thank Max Barrett, etc., for being a welcome link to home during my years away in Guinea-Bissau and before that in New Zealand. Spending two or three hours laboriously downloading each episode on my threadbare phone network has helped me keep sane during endless rainy seasons. I'm pleased to report that football is a national obsession in Guinea-Bissau. I'd encourage your listeners to consider donating to Kit Aid, who supplied hundreds of football kits for us to distribute to local communities. Uh, best wishes and up the Bissau Jertus, says Harry. Um, Ethan says, uh, hi Max, Barry and team. I've been listening to the pod since the height of lockdown one. Sat through episodes where my beloved Leicester hit the lows of missing out on the Champions League twice and the high of lifting the FA Cup through to now where we're facing seemingly impending doom. I've never been compelled to write before, but after Wednesday's Any Other Business highlighted Max's intonation of the word absolutely, I thought I'd add my tuppence. Genuinely, there are few greater joys in life for me than hearing Philippe's charming French tones emitting the word particular or a variation of it. I know there are many more merits to Philippe's personality that are genuinely commendable, but this one especially brightens up my day. I don't think there's a reason, but similar to Max and absolutely, I'd guess that the pause between par and the rest of the word, particular, has something to do with it. Love the pod, keep up the good work. Can't wait to hear Philippe's monologue when Man City finally win the Champions League (laughs) this year. I don't know, Philippe, you're not a performing monkey, but if you could say particular, it would... Okay, well, next time, you just have to wait for it. I will not say particular. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Uh, Larry says, another one for Football Weekly Bingo. Max starting one in five questions with, and I suppose, James says, I can't believe uh, so much has been said about the verbal ticks of the Football Weekly panellists and no one's mentioned Max starting every sentence with, now look, so look, or simply look. I want someone to do a super cut. It's one for Liam McClare. Finally... And this one I absolutely agree with because it's not about me. Uh, Simon says, not one for picking holes in people's pronunciation. But as uh, there's been this recent interest in Max's vocal quirks, is it time to point at the elephant in the room that is apparently? Is this received Irish or very much a unique Glendenicism? Apparently. 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 Right. I wasn't aware of this, and now I'm going to think of nothing else for <laughs> but the rest does, of my life. Does everyone in Ireland say apparently, or is that just you? Uh, I, d- I don't know. I, I've no idea. And do you say apparent? And do you now, now since me reading that, do you now say apparently? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but now I'm going to obsess about it. <laughs> Please do. Um, anyway, that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Lars. Thank you, Max. Thanks, Billy. Thank you very much, Max. Thanks, Barry. You're welcome. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove and our executive producer is Christian Bennett. This is The Guardian.